Market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our very special Sunday mail edition. That's right, it's always special. Someone who is also always special is the good doctor, Dr. Ian Mahati. How are you, Doc? I am crackingly good. Are you really? That's good to hear. Yes. It's, it's great outside. It's 22 degrees. It's bright and sunny. It's not too hot, not too cold. It's exactly like, you know, it, I'm in Sydney, but it feels like I'm in Switzerland. So how's that? It's Goldilocks territory, mate. I love it. Of course, we are recording on... <laughs> Thursday, the 21st of January, but uh, this will go on Sunday. We love our listeners that much, but we also love our family, so we're going to do a bit. We always pre-record, but uh, that means you've got something to listen to, and we can uh, get on with our weekend, spend time with our loved ones. So, mate, without any further ado, let's jump straight into the mailbag. We've got so much great stuff backed up. We're going to get through this as quickly as we possibly can. Wish us luck. Wish us luck. All right, here we go. First question, well... I'm not going to tell you who the first question is from because the, 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 the end is, is kind of amusing. I like it. He says, Hi, Scott and Doc. I love the podcast. And just so you know, I'm a member of Share Advisor, Dividend Investor, Extreme Opportunities, and this year's 2020 Motley Fool Discovery Portfolio. Good man. Thank you. I've purchased all the recommendations that came through in the trenches at the time in April 2020. On the one hand, it makes sense to sell where they're going well, especially as those returns could be better used elsewhere. However, if we've not held them for 12 months, we'll be paying capital gains tax on the full profit. I only started my share investment journey in mid-2019, he says, so I'm a newbie and just not sure whether it's best to sell now, wait till April next year or this year now, or sell and just leave for the next five years. As always, I follow through on the recommendations you and Doc make, so filling at sea with having to make this one myself. While you can't provide specific advice, any info or guides you can offer would be greatly appreciated. Thank you in advance. And he says, if you think this question is a good question for the mailbag, please feel free to, to please feel free to, but please use the code name Buzz. Now I'm not sure if that means he's Buzz Aldrin or Buzz Lightyear. I'm not sure, mate. I'm, I'm, we might be in the presence of greatness, either either cartoon greatness or astronaut space greatness. I'm not entirely sure which, or maybe maybe a third Buzz. I'm not I'm not entirely sure, but Buzz, thank you for the question. Could also be, by the way, uh, Buzz Rothfield, the uh, the rugby league writer. There are so many Buzzes, mate, and we will never ever know because. All I've been asked to was use the code name Buzz, so I have. There you go. Mate, um, really good question he raises. So bought some stocks in uh, April 2020. They've done incredibly well since, which, you know, is nice because we released that portfolio to take advantage of low prices during the pandemic, and we're pretty pleased that that's worked out. But he's saying, look, I've made some money. Um, I, I want to sell it and you know use, use the profits better elsewhere, as he says. But he's also worried about capital gains tax. Should he sell now? wait till April or just leave them for the next five years, which was the intent of the portfolio. What do you reckon, mate? Well, no, again, no personal advice. Don't know exactly what, you know, exactly what he wants and what proportion and so on. But I mean, if you bought them with the intent of holding for five years, then you should probably hold for five years mm-hmm. unless they look uh, egregiously expensive or something like that. Um, in which case, you know, you could sell. Um, it's a good, you know, t- you, you, well, tax is a good consideration, but I would also say that I never make tax the number one consideration, right? I mean, mm-hmm. if, if a thesis is not working out for, for a particular company and, uh, you know, then holding on longer actually is only going to make things worse. So that's those sort of things, if you think is company substantially overvalued and then holding on longer could make it worse. Again, you don't know what the future looks like. So you've got to make decisions based on what you have um, available to you right now. In general, my preference is to give companies a little bit of a long, you know, in three to five years is sort of what I say, unless something has horribly gone wrong. Um, you know, I'm, I'm okay to hold through rising share prices, okay to hold through falling share prices, okay to hold through 
stagnant share prices uh, because you know stuff always doesn't go up, right? <laughs> so that's and that's something that we need to realize as investors that it's you know there will be periods where things are stagnant, but that's okay. Totally, I, I think that's right, man. Uh, look, yeah, the only thing I add just for Buzz is that just be careful just because the shares are up doesn't mean they can't go higher right so some some are that that way um there's an old saying you can't go broke taking a profit that's absolutely right but as we talked about on friday mate um netflix just keeps going higher and higher and higher and at any point you would have sold netflix between now or then and you know zero and 600 um you could have felt good about making a profit but you would have left money on the table so just just really important again i i, I won't i won't talk about that portfolio specifically tell buzz specifically what he should do just important to remember that uh, just because they're up you say the returns could be better used elsewhere. I guess I'm not sure if that's true. That's the question you've got to ask yourself. Just because you're up, if you do have better ideas for your money, that's a great time to sell, by the way. If you genuinely think, I'd rather take it out of company A and put it in company B because company B's future is brighter, that's a great great reason to sell. But don't do it just because company A is up. Just because they've done well now doesn't mean they can't keep doing better. And again, if you'd, you know, you sold Netflix, at, you'd bought it at 50, sold it at 100 because you wanted to put money somewhere else. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll throw some shade on myself here, Doc. If you'd have sold Netflix at 100 and bought Berkshire Hathaway as, uh, instead because you said, well, Netflix is up, but Berkshire's not up and I'll buy that because it's going to do better. Well, you've, you've done your dough because you should have stayed with Netflix at the time. So just don't be careful not to sell just because they're up, just because you made a profit, unless you believe, as I said, that uh, that, that future is over. On the flip side, if you bought General Motors in 1940 and you held on 1990, uh, probably would have been a great time to sell. So I'm not saying don't sell, but I'm also saying don't use past performance in and of itself as the reason to sell your shares. Let's keep moving, mate, because we're on a roll. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna mention this gentleman's first name. And the reason I'm not going to is because he says, Hi Scott and Doc, I'm a principal, school principal in rural South Australia. Uh, now I figure there's not too many principals in, in rural South Australia. And so I don't, uh, thank you for the question. If you're happy for me to use your name, I'm happy to mention it again next week. You haven't asked me not to use your name, but I'm also mindful I generally use first names. But by the time you've told me you're a principal in South Australia, if your name was Jeff, for example, I don't imagine there's too many Jeffs that are principals. So I don't want to identify you. But um, again, I don't, also don't want to ignore your, your question. I don't want to not, if you want me to mention you, I'm happy to mention your, your first name, but um, I won't just out of respect. I don't, I don't want to accidentally identify you. He says, I'm a school principal in rural South Australia, and I've been investing and listening since about April. Not a bad time to get into the game, he says. That's a spectacular time to get in the game. I listen to your podcast while mowing the lawn and going for a run. I love it. Thank you, mate. A mate of mine, Chad, the accountant you mentioned a few weeks ago, there you go, Chad, got me onto your podcast and we regularly discuss shares and things you talk about when we're out on the golf course. There you go. That's pretty cool. Oh, by the way, Doc, I love rural South Australia. I'm a huge South Australia fan. I'm hoping to get there this year if, uh, if uh, COVID and the borders are kind. Uh, so we'll see. I've got, I'm due a trip to the Flinders Rangers, so we'll see. Anyway, uh, Adam, uh, oh, geez, I don't, I don't know. He has a question, <laughs> a question, a comment. Question, I hold a small amount of shares in Bravura, Bubs, and Jumbo Interactive. And they have, there have been limited growth in these companies this year, well, last year now. How long do you persist with a company with little or no return before you sell? There is so much potential in other areas, he says. And he says, I really like the hack ETF, but I don't have the capital. And I feel I may miss the boat on other opportunities. FOMO is one of the hardest parts about investing. If I sell and these stocks go up, I'll kick myself. If I don't invest in the companies I want, I will also kick myself. Help. <laughs> so let's go with that before we go on to the question. It is a really good one, isn't it, mate? FOMO and, and uh, the old green-eyed monster, jealousy, greed, fear, all that kind of stuff. These emotions are super, super, super important. Um, so first part of the question, how long do you persist with a company with little or no return before you sell? You mentioned three companies that the share price hasn't gone anywhere. The businesses themselves have maybe done better than the share price. I'm not sure. But um, your thoughts, mate, on how long do you persist 
before you give up on a company itself? Yeah, so, so first I'll, I'll, I'll own up all those three uh, recommendations in my services. <laughs> so <laughs> <There you go. laughs> so uh, I, I share his pain. Um, <laughs> yes. I don't own all three. I do actually own uh, personally um, Bob's myself. That's okay. a bit of a disclosure there. Um, so I think different, each company has had a slightly different circumstance behind them, right? So uh, in the case of, for example, Jumbo, um, there was, you know, that sort of the, uh, the lack of better, let me call it demerger from the agreements that they had with Cetats, right? Uh, oh, sorry, Tabcorp. Um, so that has had an impact on, in, in its earnings and so on. It opens up other opportunities. It's going to have some mm-hmm. impact on its earnings. That's potentially being reflected in its share price today. Um, so that's, that's, that's the jumbo story. And again, I mean, you know, the, the same with, with Bravura, I think Bravura has had some challenges with break exit and things like that. So there's, mm. you know, it, it's had some challenging years. And Bob's, I think, is caught in the middle of, um, you know, all sorts of things that are going on with respect to China, with respect to milk and with respect to Daigus, uh, with respect to the fact that borders are closed. So there's, there's, there's impact there. Actually, of, of, all, of all of these, uh, Bob's has been growing, but I think there's a lot of sentiment um, against it uh, as well. So that's a bit of, a bit of the story behind each one of them. So here's how I view these things. I, if the execution is uh, not going as planned. Mm-hmm. Now, you know that, that's that's a yellow flag, right? And you you need to give things time. I, I think, and I'm trying to separate this out from the share price. The share price may or may not move, but you need right. to separate that from execution. That's number one. And number two is you need to give some time for the execution to to take place. And, and number three would be that. Um, at, at some point, you also have to consider that you know the, the underlying business may be actually too cheap to sell. So that's another aspect to consider. Uh, the, the fourth thing I would say is, I think it's generally a bad idea to double down uh, when things are not going well and the price looks cheap. And you know, I don't want to make this a general statement, but generally, like just because you own it and you bought it at a higher price, and then you know you sort of you know you anchor on the price, and therefore you you know double down and you buy more. That I think is bad. You want to want to do is you want to buy when the execution is good, mm. at making sure that the price is right at that point. But I think you want to buy on execution, and if and and sell them, you 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 know there'll be chances, there'll be opportunities when the market will actually not recognize the execution and not recognize the opportunity and you know those don't happen that often but when they do you and if you have if you've been following the business and you have a conviction i think that's when you can double down and and actually have it so, so those are three things i'll say in terms of nice. so we have not sold any of those in in the in extreme opportunities for example uh, she give some color uh, there how long again like i tend to give companies a while before I decide um, that it's not working out. And the reason for that is very simple. Sometimes there are, there are lots of instances. So I'll give, I'll, I'll give it Disney. The Disney share price probably went nowhere, right? So Disney is a brand for, for like, what, four or five years, right? And it just recently took off, right? So this, there are opportunities there. Patience works out. And uh, you can't really make decisions just based on share price. And, and I totally get, you see the other thing that you want to own and you don't have the capital. That's a very hard call to make. And I actually detest making that call because that's a substitution decision. You have to sell something and buy something else. 
and you have to get both decisions right to actually get ahead. Um, this is a tough one to do. So my, if, if you have spare capital coming in, then you know you put that spare capital towards this other ideas that you've got. Like for example, if you like hack, mm-hmm. uh, by all means buy hack. Um, but don't get into the form of like, you know, that thing is going up in price, this thing is not. I think that's not a good way. I think that's the bottom line. Just don't do that because that's just gonna make you feel miserable. <laughs> Yeah, nice one. I like it. I think I think it's really important. I think I also say. I mean, you know, I come to you own Tesla has went nowhere for about six years, and then almost went vertical, right? And, and I think what I would say just just to just to remember, I, I absolutely understand FOMO, and I get watching <coughs> excuse me the market rise where your stocks don't. And particularly if you look at another company you might have otherwise bought and gone, oh man, I knew I should have bought that one. I've certainly been there. You've been there, mate. Um, it's one of those it's one of those stories. I think that's you know it, it's natural. But again, if you'd sold Tesla at any point in that last six years because it wasn't going anywhere and you were chasing something that was going up a little bit, um, you would have missed that massive return. Now, I'm not saying everything's Tesla, by the way, um, nor is everything you know going to go the other way. So I'm, I'm not. There is no blanket rule. What I would say to to our question is simply just be thoughtful about um, if you genuinely think another business has a better long term potential and is more attractively valued accordingly, then you should buy that anyway. If you look at it and go, oh, you know what, I made a mistake. I should have bought that one instead. Then go for it. But but please, please don't jump out of a company just because it's gone. Vocus is another one locally that went nowhere for the first. We had as a recommendation of ShareAdvisor in 2012, I think. And it went almost nowhere in a couple of years. And I can remember having this conversation made in, in the office with, there wasn't many of us back then. Um, you know, is it time to sell? Should we sell? It's going nowhere. What do we do? And we just waited and waited and waited. Eventually, like, not like Tesla didn't go that well, but, um, you know, eventually the business model started to work out and all the investments they were making and the lack of absolute returns, they were still getting the job done. They just, you know, they were building infrastructure. They were spending a lot of money and they harvested that infrastructure over the following couple of years. You had to wait for that part of the journey. So again, I make no comment on Brevure or Bubs or Jumbo. Um, you need to decide for yourself which stocks you want to own and why. But seriously, don't just sell out the ones that aren't going well and buy the the winners um, because, you know, general, mean reversion is not always mean reversion, right? But just be careful uh, because chasing, you know, in funds management, certainly chasing last year's winners is a terrible strategy. Um, just just be careful. So if, if you've got a great company, great business, you'll like another one better, you've got better long-term returns, buy it. But don't let the most recent returns and most recent share price movements push you around. All right, here's the question, or the comment, sorry. While I have personally, sorry, while I personally have not reaped the benefit of JobKeeper, as my wife and I are essential, in air quotes, I feel there is a nasty side effect of the initiative. It's easier for people to stay at home and pick up the payment than earn slightly more or less, he says, at a business. Rural areas already struggle for workers, e.g. the Riverland have no fruit pickers, there's a lack of... Um, carers for those who attract NDIS support, limited social workers in regional areas, etc. The list goes on. While it's already hard to staff positions in country areas, I feel that job keepers make it even harder. My solution, reduce the amount of money given a job keeper or a job seeker and create an essential worker tax rebate. Those who are seen as essential will pay less tax and hopefully this incentive will draw people to the jobs that are needed. Keep doing what you're doing. I love it. And for someone who wastes too much time in social media, I would say hashtag don't give in doc. Hashtag doc is king. Look out. You're the monarch now, mate. Is that I love that. Better? Is that better than being president? I suppose it is. If you're king, well, I mean, that's, it, you know, king it, for life, right? Can I just be the king of like the Commonwealth or something? That'll be pretty cool. <laughs> I think, you, I think you now are. It sounds like it sounds like you've been bestowed the title, mate. The the Mahanti dynasty starts here, uh, and you are now the king of something. I'm not sure if it's the king of the podcast or the investing or maybe king of investing. I like that. You go with that. Anyway, mate, you're quite, do you have any thoughts on on his comment in terms of job keeper and job seeker? Uh, not not really. Like not really. Like I mean, uh, just just one comment. Like I think 
look, no scheme is perfect, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you just have to, like, I mean, at a high level, given the amount of information that was available, I mean, that was a pretty darn good screen, which has, you know, yeah. worked reasonably well. It's, you know, I don't think any of these schemes can be perfect. So I think the government yeah. did actually pretty good and pretty swift. So, you know, credit where it is due. Like, I mean, yeah. I mean, I mean, I think, you know, all things put together, I think that was, that was fine. And again, I think, yeah. Uh, so I, I, I think it's fine, but there, there are probably, you know, d- d- lots of different things that could have been different, but I, I, get, I wouldn't criticize. I, I agree. I, I think it's one of the, everything's got, a, everything's got a side effect, right? And there's no perfect scheme and you can't have one thing without doing something else. If you'd reduce JobKeeper, you know, and put tax rebate in for essential workers, would you have created the economic demand? Would you have shored up all those jobs? Maybe, maybe not. We can't ever know, right? There's, you can't know the counterfactual. These are single examples. Um, but I agree. I think I said on Friday the early access scheme was an absolute unmitigated disaster and a terrible, terrible policy. But the rest of the rest of the economic response, I think, has been pretty good. Again, rough edges. You're always. Gonna, it's one of those things. Mate, if you you have to substitute speed and size for accuracy and um, what's the word? Probably you know detail, right? So yes, we could have had a, a multi-stage, multi-industry policy that had this for this and that for that, and you know it could have taken six months to design, and implement, and consultations and all that kind of stuff. What they need to do is throw a whole lot of money and a whole lot of people to keep the economy afloat. It worked. It's got it's got unintended consequences, but as you say, that's that's just kind of life, and I think they've done pretty well. Good question. Yeah, Thank I, you. I, I Thank you, yeah. Emma. Go on. Yeah. No, 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 that, that, no. I'm just saying. I think I agree. Yeah. Beautiful. Question from Dean. Now, this one we've kind of covered a little bit in the past, mate, with bonds and, and shares, but but it's a slightly different context, so let's go with it. Hi, Scott and Doc, says Dean. As a short-time listener but long-term investor, I have a question regarding super. The only thing we like better than uh, short-term listeners is long-time listeners, but either way, if you're listening, we appreciate it. Dean <laughs> said, so thank you. My super allocation, he says, is with Australian super, 100% index diversified portfolio. I've got 20 plus years in investment horizon, and an eye for low-cost investing. That's a pretty good combination. It says, is now a good time to move away from 70% stocks, 30% bonds, considering 30% bonds is a high allocation when the rate of return is low, coupled with my advantage of a 20-plus year investment horizon. I'd love to hear your thoughts on when, when fees can take a backseat to performance and what, if any advantage, bonds will offer to a 20-plus year investor. Now, I'm going to say, Doc, I'm going to editorialize the first part of this because I think we're both on the same page as saying we don't love bonds for a long-term investor. 70, 30, 60, 40, they, they give you volatility protection a little bit. And if people need that, then that's great. So, I'd, you know, I don't want to underplay that that benefit if it keeps you in the game because, you know, some some lower return, more stable products just give you that volatility protection, just make you less freaked out, less like you do anything silly, then they have their role, right? But I think it's psychological more than investing returns. You want to maximize your returns if you can if you can stomach the volatility. Is it, you were in agreement there on Doc, I think? Yeah, I think so. I think, uh, again, I'm not a fan of, bonds for reasons you have discussed before. So what I what I thought I'd ask you though, Doc, is, is Dean's other question, which is I'd love to hear your thoughts on when fees can take a backseat to performance. Because we, well, I certainly bang, bang on a lot about keeping your fees low. It's the one thing investors can control, particularly when it comes to managed funds and other things. Um, if you can't control the investment returns, if you can't control you know other stuff, the one thing you can control is fees. And generally speaking, fees are the difference at an industry level between underperformance and, and market matching performance. The difference is by definition fees. So keeping them low makes sense if you're going to match some sort of index. But when should fees take a backseat to performance, mate? To Dean's question. Well, like anybody who's de- delivering uh, sort of, you know, um, above say the, you know, the median, uh, above market returns plus something, right? 
you know, mm. if, you, if you can deliver 20% above market returns, I think, you know, they're deserving of fees. I mean, the best way probably for for all of these things is to, when they show returns, is to show returns, you know, minus the fees, basically, right? And if you're looking at past, you know, past performance is no indicator of future performance, but if you're using that as sort of a, sort of a rough gauge even, then, you know, having, an, having a sense of that. So again, depends, right? If you want some actively managed ETF, for example, that you pay some high fees for it, but you're getting like superb returns, you get 30% returns, it's okay to pay, yeah, <laughs> you know. Exactly. It's it. Yeah. You know, if you're paying one percent fee on that, that's not yeah. actually like I mean that. Correct. It's nothing, right? So it really depends. But you know, the higher the performance, the higher the fees. In in fact, you know, I would almost say that you know you could have a scaled fee structure where it basically says, well, I deliver you higher performance, I I take uh, I take fees, and then you have sort of I love that. you know yeah. yeah, and then and sort of you know high watermark sort of idea that you know you you, you it can't restart because you know you had a bad year, right? So. Mm. I like that, mate. I think, you know, I would say, so exactly what you've said, we, we talk about saying, you know, don't focus on tax, focus on after-tax returns. So you don't, you don't want to minimize tax, you want to maximize your after-tax return. Because um, if you minimize tax, you can do lots of stupid things to, to pay no tax. Uh, you can lose money on, on terrible investments and pay no tax. Um, that's worse than paying a, a lot of tax on a spectacularly great investment. I mean, if I, you know, if I bought Netflix at 10 bucks and now it's 600, if I sell that and pay an absolute Monty, in capital gains tax, I'd be the happiest man in the world. You know, if that was, you know, if I, if I can retire on my Netflix, even after I pay six figures in tax, I don't you know, generally don't care. No, I'd rather not pay tax. Of course, no one does, but um, I think that's a pretty good outcome. So I'd say that first. Um, second thing I'd say is, so think about fees the same way. So if you can't control the performance, then control the fees is the easiest way to go. And as an industry, as here's the problem with, you've, you've talked about, Doc, um, so there's a scientific term for like, was it uh, localizing the maximum? What is it? Global, global black yeah, so, maximum. What is it? That, yeah. That so, so, there, so, so there's like, you know, there's a, in optimization, people talk about, you know, the local optimum and, right. and or optima and the global optima. And, and I right, think, right. you know, the local, the, this is, this is a classic problem. And this is, you mm-hmm. know, whether it's, it's politics, engineering, or whatever, it's easier to do a local optimi- optimized solution than to do mm-hmm. a global optimized solution and global optimized solution because it's just harder to too many other variables. People get stuck in the local optimum and then they can't get out of it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because again, it requires a lot of creative thinking. So, so right, that, right. you know, that's, that's what that so, is. So yeah. using that concept, I think here's, here's, the, here's the paradox, right? So there are going to be funds that beat the market. And if they beat the market after fees, you should invest in them. At a, at a total level, though, by definition, not every the managed funds as a group will lose to the market because they get the market return and you take fees out of that. So you've got this weird thing where there's a distribution within that. So the great funds will beat the market. And if they beat the market after fees, you should invest them and pay the fees happily because you're beating the market. You're getting a, you're getting a better return than you'd get otherwise. But not everyone can do that because not everyone can invest in only the, be- the market beating fund. I guess they could technically, but they won't, right? So if, if, I've, got, if I've got every investor in Australia in front of me and I say, I have one rule for all of you and that's the, that's the question I'm asked, it would be do whatever you can to minimize fees. At an individual level, if I said, is it worth, as you say, mate, investing in the fund returning 30% and paying a 5% fee? Yes, every day of the week, do it for sure. And that's, that's the problem because the, the, the next question is, well, which one's going to outperform next year? or the year after that, or the year after that. And that's when, it's a difficult question. So the honest answer is, um, you should absolutely minimize, I should actually put performance in front of fees. If you have a high degree of confidence that you'll be able to deliver market beating returns after those fees are paid. The less confidence you have in your ability to find that person or that fund, and frankly, it's hard, because I said the average fund doesn't beat the market. So you're, you're betting against <laughs> the probability, 
But if you think you can, that's when I would happily pay the fees. Any thoughts on that, mate? Well, I think I, I totally agree with that. that that's all 100% accurate. Cool. All right. Uh, mate, I'm going to go to a question which I love that we got asked because it's great, a great chance for us to address it. I'm not going to mention the company name because I don't want to get sued. Uh, but here's a question from Graham. Hi, guys. I've received a couple of online ads from a particular Bitcoin company claiming that Alan Joyce, the CEO of Qantas, and others are enjoying extraordinary profits on an almost daily basis. The advertising does have spelling and other grammatical errors, which to me is warning of a possible scam. I'd be interested if Motley Fool has any comments to make about this trading system. Is it legit, illegal, a scam, or just too dodgy? Is it a way into investors' bank accounts? Regards, Graham. Graham, I love you asked this question, mate. It is absolutely a scam. And because I didn't mention the company, I get to say that without worrying about legal activity. Uh, and if the company thinks it's them, maybe it's somebody else. So there you go. By the way, if a scam wants to take me to court, bring it on because if you want to expose yourself, knock yourself out. Um, Alan Joyce is not promoting Bitcoin, I promise you. I have seen people like Dick Smith. Uh, who else have we seen, mate? David Koch, the finance expert and Sunrise presenter. is being Scott Pape from Barefoot, I think was included on that. Have you seen, I've seen anyone else. That, so basically what happens is the scammers create these fake news articles. They include some celebrities saying, look what I'm doing. You, They even dress them up. I think I've seen the Daily Telegraph's domain spoofed uh, by a mob saying this is a Daily Telegraph article. When you get there, of course, it's not Daily Telegraph. It's, you know, uh, abcxyz.com or something. It's, you know, entirely different. So just be, be super, super careful. Um, about how that works out. But yeah, these are absolute scams. I promise you Alan Joyce is not promoting Bitcoin. Neither is David Koch, neither is Scott Pope, neither is anybody else. Um, If it looks too good to be true, it probably is. It is super dodgy. It is one of the downsides of the um, uh, complete lack of effort spent trying to get uh, social media advertising fixed. We get lots of spam links on our Facebook page for what it's worth. We get people saying, I've tried this trading system and just click here to act to talk to my advisor on WhatsApp or something. They are super dodgy. We try and kill them off as quickly as we can, but uh, they're like moles. You whack them in one spot and they come up somewhere else. So uh, be super careful, please. Yeah, absolutely. Even though they use that person who has in theory some credibility, um, they are doing that illegally, improperly, and certainly unethically and stay the hell away. Any more thoughts on that, Doc? I have nothing to add. Beauty. One from Dan. He says, uh, please use my first name only. Nailed it. I'm on fire. Thanks, Dan. Hi, guys. Thank you for contributing to my investing knowledge and literacy over many years. You're welcome. Now, this is a good question, Doc. He says, I'm wanting to get a better handle. I'm starting from a low base, he says, on understanding how to read a balance sheet. Can you direct me to any resources? For example, what aspects of the balance sheet do you focus on when trying to understand if a company is growing and if that growth looks sustainable? I'm a member of Share Advisor and frequently cannot connect your specific company recommendations with my understanding of a company's balance sheet. I need to get up to speed. I eagerly await your recommendations and suggestions. Cheers, Dan. Doc, I'm going to throw this to you first. Um, there's a reading financial statements. Now, we should say it's not just the balance sheet, right? There's three financial statements, or there's four now, but three major ones. The balance sheet, the profit loss statement, and the statement of cash flows. I had to think about the third one for a second there. How's that? Um, they are the three. They are the three key financial statements, mate. It's it's a fair question, right? If you're someone, I, I I grew up on. I grew up learning about financial statements, mate. I put everything in spreadsheets, as I've said before. I had ratios coming out my backside. It was. I had some great Excel spreadsheets. Um, but to, to Dan's question, often when we make recommendations, you can't look at the balance sheet and say, okay, I see where the opportunity is based on that. How how would you tell Dan to think about reading the financial statements? Yeah, so I think uh, you know uh, th- this is uh, this requires practice, and mm-hmm. you know, and everybody has a slightly different way of doing things. It also differs 
from sector to sector, right? So the balance sheet, for example, for a retailer is going to look very different from, say, the balance sheet of, I don't know, a software company, for example, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so those are, those are things. Um, in terms of looking at growth, though, like, I mean, balance sheet is probably not the first place to look, assess growth, right? If you want to assess growth, you probably look at um, the income statement or you're looking at basically, you know, whether it is, you know, re- you know, revenue is growing or not, right? What you can see on the balance sheet, though, is, uh, you know, what assets does the company have or, or what are the assets they have on what are they valued at you could look at you know how much cash they have got you know you could look at how much debt they've got both short term long term you can look at what sort of you know if if it's like for example a retailer or you know some sort of manufacturer will have probably inventory you could see so i mean one interesting thing might be for example if you if you sell widgets and you've got inventory and your inventory is just is growing at a faster pace than sales um that could be a red flag, right? I mean, you know, why is your inventory growing at a faster pace than sales? Right. Maybe you're just acquiring stuff that you know eventually is not going to, you know is going to be written down, right? So those sort of things one can look at. Uh, you know, is there goodwill on the balance sheet? Again, that can be something. You know, if they have acquired something, they might be sitting as goodwill uh, on the balance sheet. Is there really another things like intangibles that are like you know they have acquired again? I don't know, some software that has just booked on the balance sheet. So there's a lot of those things. You could also look at um, liabilities and things like that. You know, what is owed to others, what has to be paid. Yeah, right. Um, you know, but none of these things, though, will again tell you a lot about growth. So, I mean, if you want to look at growth, you probably have to look at, you know, revenue and income and earnings and, you know, potentially free cash flow. So the cash flow statement uh, is probably where you get the growth. So the balance sheet is really, I mean, what I'll say is the balance sheet is really helpful for two, three things. Is one is to see over a period of time how's how's the cash trending, how's the debt trending, and how many shares outstanding are there, right? Because those all those three things impact because you know, ultimately we own pieces of the business. If everything looks fine, but if the company has just diluted itself, you know, totally, then you just have a smaller piece of the of, of the company over time, right? So again, those are sort of things. I look at, but again, this would vary from industry to industry is what, what I would say. Nice summary. Thanks, man. That's really good, actually. Um, so I'm going to start by saying, I, it's one of the, I think sometimes knowing when to look at what statement is useful, as Doc's already pointed out, Dan. So from, from that perspective, we very rarely make decisions at share advisor in particular, for example, on the balance sheet. In fact, if we do, we're likely to make decisions against a company, to Doc's point. You might do on the basis of how much debt, for example, on the balance sheet. So... Ordinarily, you can you can assume that if we make a recommendation because with the balance sheet's okay, the balance sheet's really going to be the thing that makes us make that decision. We're really going to say, oh, look at those look at those current liabilities, or you know, look look at that plant and equipment. We'll we'll buy the shares or or won't. Uh, but it can, can be from time to time. Largely, it's going to be the level of debt that keeps us away from a particular company. Um, it's you know what, Doc, you kind of mentioned the point, but for me, it's actually the, this is this is it's a hard answer, Dan. Right. So the, the honest answer is it's really really hard, and it's experience that will help you. Because I'm going to say something. I'll say we use the three statements in conjunction, and and that's like, well, what do you mean? Like that that's not very helpful as an answer, and it's really not. So the first thing you need to do is understand the statements which you're trying to do, Dan, which is spectacularly good. So keep doing that. Um, understand what the what the components are, how they work, all that sort of stuff. Then you want to look at it in conjunction. So for example, as Doc said, capitalizing software development can go on the balance sheet, or they can expense it through the P and L. So the two, two companies can do two very different things if they spend a million dollars on software, for example. And so knowing the difference between those two or how they're used, how they're, how they're accounted for is super important. Again, as Doc says, you know, earnings growth or cash flow growth 
um, it can be different things. You can you can grow profits by making a, a profit on selling a piece of equipment. Uh, that's not operational performance. That's not operational success. Um, you can book a profit, by the way, by reducing your bad debts provisions. Zero cash impact there, right? If I, if I said this year, I think I'm going to have $100,000 worth of people that won't pay me, and next year I go, oh, no, they paid me. Actually, that's now down to zero. I've improved my profit by $100,000 just by taking away a, a, an allowance I made for not being paid. And so those kind of things, you know, they, they can really move the dial. So it's a really, really difficult, complex thing to do. The other thing I would say, by the way, is at ShareAdvisor, we don't spend too much time on the balance sheet because inevitably we're looking forward rather than backwards. So the balance sheet tells us where we are now. The P&L tells us what happened last year, but neither of those will tell us what the future will look like. And I think particularly in this modern world where businesses are increasingly intangible, that is they're using things like software, for example, that don't have, you know, they're not buying big machines or big plots of land or um, investing a heap in inventory. Um, it's the future that matters far more than the past. So, you know, knowing where we are, knowing what the last year was, they're really useful, really important starting points, but we're far more likely to look at the future, which is why we very rarely talk about balance sheet components, for example, because uh, they're generally not as relevant. If they are, as I said, it probably excludes a recommendation, so you won't read it because you don't, we don't list the companies we don't recommend, um, which makes it hard. Anything else on that, Doc? I kind of feel like we haven't really helped, Dan, but I also... Uh, modern investing is rarely codified so simply and so formulaically that I can say, I mean, I said, I, I, I've said before, I had a spreadsheet with 60 formulas on it. I had cash conversion cycles and inventory um, usage and you know days sales outstanding and uh, cap, you know, growth, gross margin growth. And I, I had all sorts of cool, cool metrics. Um, the more I learned about investing though, the more I realized it really was, you have to know that stuff. It is the language of, of, of business, but it is the future that matters, right? And, and I'm saying that bit, uh, and trying to work out that part of it is far more important for mine than worrying about individual lines on the balance sheet. I agree. I think, again, you can't, there's, there's no magic formula here yeah, that we can come up with, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> oh, oh, no, I say fortunately, right? If there was a magic formula, then we'd be so out of business. Yeah. Well, and that's, it's hard for new investors, right? Like, I, honestly, I really, really get it, Dan. Like, I mean, I, yeah, I, I, got, I think I've said it before, I, bought, I used to call, this is how old I am. I'd call the company and say, can you please send me, hard copy, your last five annual reports? And they'd send them out and I'd open them up and I'd type all the numbers into a spreadsheet. So I had all these things, I could calculate these ratios. And just got to the point where I went, I know, you know, it's like knowing, the, as I said, the price of everything, the value of nothing. I knew all the ratios. I'm like, now what do I do with this? And it came down to, well, actually, how's the share, how's the company priced and what does the future look like? Oh, now I get it. So I would spend far more time on business model understanding. I'd spend far more time on understanding the, the business, its customers, its technology, if it has it, um, its operations, if it doesn't. Um, understanding, you know, is it simply more likely to be more profitable in future and why? Um, and when I say profitable, again, I don't just mean economic profit or, or accounting profit, but just, you know, is it, is it likely to be bigger, better, um, to, to keep more of every dollar of sale it makes, more, make more, more dollars of those sales? They are infinitely more important to me than, than the balance sheet. Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, mate. Question from John. Discot and Doc, I'm a podcast listener and a Motley Fool subscriber to Share Advisor and Dividend Investor. John, I'm sure if we answer this question, you'll add to that by joining Extreme Opportunities as well. Uh, he says, I have a quick question. The male may not have a quick answer. Now, it has a very long answer, but we'll have to keep it short, John, unfortunately. So this might disappoint. He says, I'm interested in your investment process. On average, how many stocks would you look at before you find one to invest in? And what sort of information is your go-to in your research? I enjoy the show and use the total full package as a great investment service. Thank you, John. Kind regards, John. 
All right, mate. Uh, can you help John in a couple of sentences? <laughs> I know it's the unanswerable question. Uh, what is your investment process? How many companies do you look at before you make an investment decision? And what sort of information is your go-to in your research? This is, <laughs> this is a hard one again. I mean, I mean look, so uh, we, we call it turning rocks, right? So we turn a lot of rocks um, as a part of our job, right? So we're basically constantly looking at things. We uh, look at ideas. We read them. So we... We read hundreds and hundreds of these ideas, or, or, or we read about hundreds and hundreds of different companies, yeah. and then we basically pick from among them. There's no, like, I personally don't have, like, I can't say I have a codified rule again. You look at a company, you try to understand it, and there's, I think, I call it, there's a bit of quantitative aspect. So, yes, I want growth, I want this type of margin, I like that type of business, etc., etc., etc. But there is a bit of qualitativeness to the to the process as well, right? Which is, you know, things like, well, do I think this management team is good? Do I think this problem that they're trying to address or this solution that they've got or this thing that they're doing is good, worthwhile, something important? Um, you know, do they have the capability to deliver on that? All sort of those qualitative factors, you know, is the management team A rate, B rate, C rate, whatever rate it is, um, and things like that. So there's a lot of those things that come into play in the decision making. Um, so yeah, I mean, yes, the more you read, so here's what I would say, the more you read about companies, the better you get at reading about companies, but the quicker you get at reading about. So, so practice is is great and it's very useful. Mm-hmm. And and you learn from both your successes and mistakes that you make over time, um, which is, again, you don't want to learn the, learn the wrong lessons, but you can mm-hmm. learn from mm-hmm. them, which is again important. And that's sort of the process. Again, I don't have a ballpark number or figure. In terms of how, like, individuals are different. How many companies individuals should hold really differs. Like, there are people I know who are concentrated investors who hold 20 companies. There are people who hold, like, 30. There are people who hold 40. There are people who hold 100. Anything can work, right? And one could say that 100 is, is you know, is becoming like an ETF, and it is. But 100 in a world of 10,000 equities is still a really small number, right? It could be the 100 best companies one could find. So uh, anything... Again, you know. Again, it depends on what works for you as an individual. That's that's probably mm-hmm. the most important mm-hmm. thing. I like that. Yeah, I, it's iterative, right? And, and I think that's that's both scary and great. It's really hard when you get started. You know, there is no there is no easy answer. As Doc said, other we'd be out of a job. But but you know, if anyone could do it, anyone would do it. And if it could be done really really easily, there'd be no returns for those who put the effort and time in. Um, so you know, it's really really hard. I think the other thing, it's like it's so iterative. You know, like Doc and I have looked at so many hundreds and thousands of companies over the last. I don't know how many, you know, almost twenty years for me, um, to to the point where every every bit of the good thing about investing is it's it's cumulative, right? So when I look at a new piece of information, what I know is there's another ninety nine pieces of information that contextualise that that I've absorbed over the last, you know, I said 10, 20 years, and so as you add that together. Um, you don't have to start from scratch. You have to start from scratch. It's a bit like, it's a bit like you know, it's like um, those those things that we do instinctively as humans. I know I don't have to think about getting out of bed. I don't have to think about breathing. I don't have to think about walking to the bathroom or picking up the toothbrush. You just kind of do it, right? You, you decide to do it, and your body just knows what to do. Those those instinctive, intuitive things that we learn or we pick up um, that helps us in our investment process. So it's a really, really difficult one to answer for exactly that reason. Um, and again, the services are different. So Doc's looking for small caps. There's so many, there's thousands out there and there are a few that are investable, right? And so he does a whole, his team do a whole lot of work, massive amounts of, you know, kind of filtering. Um, so I imagine, Doc, that's where a lot of your time and effort is put. 
for the service I run, ShareAdvisor, for example, the universe is much smaller. It's probably I don't know, a quarter of the size, maybe maybe even less. Maybe it's a an eighth of the size uh, of Docs Universe of, of you know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of small caps. I've got a couple of hundred investable because we look at mid and large cap companies for ShareAdvisor. So so what we're looking for is trying to get deeper into the companies and try and work out where we think the market's wrong on these businesses. So there's less you know initial work to do. But we have to go deeper to try and find our, uh, use the um, the term on Friday, Doc, variant perception. We need to really try hard to find those companies that we think the market's mispricing and try and work out why. So it's a different type of, of um, a different uh, framework or, or focus to the investing. Same same processes, by the way. Exactly the same thing. We're looking for businesses that are underpriced relative to the future. That's what all good investing is. Uh, we just do it a little bit differently. For me, the information... Um, Again, I'm looking. At, I'm looking at the businesses themselves. Look at their business models. I'm looking at their growth potential. I'm looking at the quality often of their brands or what differentiates them from their their competitors. So I'm looking for competitive advantages and preferably sustainable competitive advantages. Things that make them better than their. You know, why is Bunnings better than Mitre Ten? Why is uh, I don't know the athlete's foot better than my local shoe store? Uh, why is corporate travel better than flight center? Or you know whatever those whatever those questions are, they're, they're not necessarily binary questions. Except that if I find one that's better, and it can keep being better, there's a chance it'll grow either at the expense of or simply just faster than those other competitors. And if it's priced appropriately or or mispriced more to the point, um, then there's an investment opportunity there. So that's kind of what I'm looking for myself. Um, we tend not to use. I don't know anyone on the team who uses discounted cash flows to a big degree. Some of our guys use them more than others. Doc. Um, but you know you're trying to you're trying to contextualize the future growth of a business compared to its category, to the opportunity, you pay, and most importantly, the price you're paying. And again, not even in a you know decimal point kind of way, just broadly. Doc would say, can this business be ten times the size in the future? If it can, well, there's a very good chance it's not priced like that. I can't do that with most of my medium, medium and large cap companies. It's not going to grow that far. But I'm still saying, okay, what does the current price imply? And do I think that that's undervalued? relative to what I think the future looks like. If it is, then we should get share price outperformance. Anything else on that, mate? I cannot add to that beautiful answer. Oh, mate, you did all the hard work. I just, uh, I just filled in a couple of extra extra gaps. Mate, um, question from Jim. I've got a question. The podcast has covered property, government bonds, high-yield bonds. What about renewable asset risk and returns? By this, I mean for large solar farm investment of one megawatt plus solar projects, there is an opportunity to get an 8% return on funds. This is mainstream solar, not high-risk thermal or wing or wave generation. Can you please advise? Thanks, Jim. What do you reckon, mate? So isn't this uh, very similar to a bond, right? I mean, basically, you, it's an asset-backed um, security, right? So there's yep. the whatever, the farm, or the wind farm or the solar farm or whatever it is. And there's a guaranteed, uh, I guess, or sort of guaranteed income of 8%. I don't know again without knowing the details. So well, this is like, well, I mean, it's for the income investors. You know, you'd have to assess the probability that they're going to continue paying the eight percent and then return the capital. And if they do, then that's you know pretty damn good returns, right? That's all I can say about them. I mean, this is not. I'm not looking for eight percent returns. I don't look at these sort of things, so I don't have other any other things to add. I think that's right. I think. Um, look, I think, yeah. It's hard, mate. Like, you know, I don't do risk-adjusted risk returns. There's a whole lot of finance, you know, academic research and views on that stuff. And I find that leaves me generally pretty cold because uh, a lot of the assumptions have to assume all else being equal, which it never is. So it kind of defeats the purpose. It's a fine theoretical construct. It doesn't really work in the real world. 
That being said, look, if I could get a guaranteed 8% or a chance at 12, I'm not sure I wouldn't take the eight, right? If it, you know, if I knew I could get the 12, it'd be different. But you've got to, if I looked at the probability and said, well, I've got a you know, one in three chance of getting 12%, but I've got a 100% chance of getting eight, I'd probably take the 8% return. So I wouldn't dismiss it outright. But but to your point, I wouldn't also be chasing it. And here's why. Um, you need to know if that's the maximum upside and nothing else has a 100% chance. You know, if it was government bonds paying 8%, I'd, I'd probably put my entire portfolio in it and be done with it. Um, but they're not, right? And, and if you can get 8% in some sort of infrastructure style, bond style return, either that means the assets are very mispriced because an 8% guaranteed return would be spectacular or that guarantee or likely guaranteed return isn't actually as guaranteed as it looks because there's no free lunch, right? So I don't know the projects in, in, in question. I haven't looked at them in, in any detail. Um, I don't think we should invest in renewables just because they're renewable. If you want to do that, by the way, as a, as a charitable thing, by all means do it, but don't do it trying to get a return. Um, I, I would look at the asset and just simply say, do I think, it, you know, look, if it's mispriced, that's great. Like, honestly, if, if no one else is investing in renewables, which means they're paying really high returns just to get whatever money they can, then great. I mean, take it by all means, you know. We, that's what we do when you buy shares. If we buy shares that are stupid cheap because the market's missing it, I'm not going to give it up and say, well, no, that's, that's too good to be true. Maybe it is, by the way, so I'll check. But if it isn't too good to be true, it's just a great opportunity to buy a, a cheap asset, then I'll buy it in a heartbeat. Um, but just just be just be mindful of, of the quality and type of asset you're buying. Does it really justify its position? Does it really justify its place? And ask yourself, really, why am I being offered that? Because uh, in, in investing in shares, we normally try and find the bear case, right? This looks too cheap. What am I missing is the question we ask ourselves. Um, 8% kind of reasonably fixed return is really high. Like it's higher than you get I think in almost any other asset class, I can't think of a, a fixed asset return of 8% doc anywhere else. So I would, I would start with, is it too good to be true or work backwards from there? Uh, let's go to a question from Gary, mate. We are flying through the question. We've got a little bit of time left. Question from Gary. Quick comment. Here we go. Um, <laughs> I think we've we've talked a little bit about this before. I think, mate, we might even cover this particular question. So if we have, uh, hit me up on it. Quick question. Quick comment, Scott and Doc, about the difference between companies and governments with respect to QE and cap raising capital. I'm not an economist, but surely the government that can print money is way different to a company that can't. I referenced Stephanie Kelton and monetary modern monetary theory, I should say, about which I've read a bit. Gary. He also says we were a bit long-winded, mate, but I've, I left that bit out so that Alyssa didn't hear me say that. Um, uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start, mate. I don't think there is a huge difference, actually, because while governments, you know, while companies can't print money, they can print something else. And you've talked about this before. They can print shares. So you kind of can print money to some degree. Now, the price you get for that is, is, is an open question. By the way, if you print too much money, inflation is the price you pay for that as well. So there, I mean, it's, it's absolutely not a like-for-like like comparison, but it's also not as as opposite as I think Gary might be suggesting, uh, at least in terms of the potential for alternative options. So, you know, if I'm a company and I want to issue more shares, I can. If I want a government, I want to issue more currency, I can. There are costs to both, but I don't think it's that different. Am I missing something, mate? No, no, you're not missing. So, yes, yes, you know, the, the way I have to think about this is often people will talk about um, sort of a bit of an educational element because I read this, you know, uh, yesterday again. How people will talk about... Uh, companies market caps and compare that with GDPs of countries. That's completely the wrong sort of comparison, right? Yeah. So, but, I like that. <laughs> but, but here, here's one that, that will get closer. Think of the GDP, yep. the, the gross domestic product. That is sort of like the sales of a company, yes, right? Yes, absolutely. Like, okay. Now, now think about it this other way. So the, a country has sales, its products. Yes. Yes. The country then prints money and then increases its sales. Mm -hmm. So this is like basically yeah, a lemonade right. stand yeah. saying that I'm just going to buy all the lemonade that you're going to make make, and just somehow the sales are going to go up. 
<laughs> yeah, I like right? that. Right? So, yep. so that's what I think. So, you know, whether it is the company <laughs> or the government, effectively, there could be the same thing. Um, yes. so, so it's not quite. And then the other thing to remember is while a you know, sovereign national government with its own currency, that's the important part, has control of its currency, has some leeway in terms of printing money. Remember that we don't live in an isolation, right? So if, if Australian government prints a lot of Australian dollars, effectively it takes down the value of Australian dollar relative to other Correct. currencies. And Correct. therefore, when we try to buy other things, they're going to be more expensive. Mm-hmm. So net-net, we might not actually go anywhere, right? And, and then remember the lemonade stand. You know, if you just buy all your own lemonade, I mean, your sales go up. But like, I mean, really, you're, you're just, you know, using your own currency to buy your lemonade and you think you're actually growing a business, you are not. Yeah, that's right. so, so, <laughs> yeah, that's so, a really good point, right? Uh, so, so, so that's, that's, that's sort of the analogy. So that's sort of similar, but you know, sort of different, but yeah. Very good, mate. I love that. Really good summary. I, I have nothing to add. Um, uh, question from Sam. Hi, Scott and Doc. Thanks for answering my question on the New Year's mailbag episode. I was stoked. You're welcome, mate. Here is a question though. He says, this question is in regards to the capital gains tax implications for employee share purchase plans, which are quite common these days. My company has an excellent one, whereby if you buy and hold a share for three years, the company will provide a matching share. Would selling a matched share require declaring 100% of the sell price to the tax man, considering it has been received for free? Full on Sam. Now we're not tax accountants, Doc. Do you want to first go at this or do you want me to pick it up? Um, I think I know the answer for this. So, I mean, is, assuming the ma- matching share is like, you know, you buy one, you get one free. Mm-hmm. Um, effectively, well, you didn't pay anything for it. So your entry price is zero or you can say that the entry price for both of those share pieces is like mm-hmm. half of whatever. I think it will be zero, would be my guess. Mm, so if you paid nothing, <laughs> you start from zero, then you're paying tax on basically zero to whatever is the price. That would be my guess. Um, it, it's look. The first thing I would say about it is ask your tax accountant. There is no free lunch, by the way, so you're going to pay for it either way. Um, you will absolutely have 100% to declare to the tax man at some point. The question will be for the tax man what is considered income and what is considered a capital gain. I know if you're granted a share by a company, uh, for example, a free share, Motley Fool is a, is a company owned by its founders and its employees, largely, a couple of ex-employees and one tiny small venture capital investment. Um, if we're given a free share, we have to declare the value of that share at the prevailing price as income in the year we're given it. And then if we sell it subsequently and make a capital gain, then we sell it, that difference is counted as a capital gain. So uh, just be, be be careful. I don't know the honest answer, Sam. I don't want to give you an answer because I don't know. Uh, but assume that there is tax payable, absolutely, even though it's free. Uh, so yes, you'll have to pay 100% of the value as, as tax. Whether... Uh, of course, you get value for it and what the tax man says it's worth are two very different things. Um, so yeah, I, I would just say, look, I don't know. Um, you'd want to get specific advice to your circumstance. It may depend, for example, on how that extra share is treated, um, what tax year you have to pay the tax in, all that kind of stuff that comes with it. So uh, I don't have a good answer, man. I'm not going to try and guess. Uh, accountant's the one you want to go to for that one. The company itself may provide some general advice, by the way. So I'd start with your HR department. They won't give you personal tax advice, of course, but they may be able to provide a, um, a pro forma piece of tax advice about how these things are traditionally treated. All right, let's move on to another question. Um, question from, uh, sorry, we missed that one already. Um, Carl. Hey, Scott and Doc, great podcast. Keep up the good work. Thank you, mate. I'm a new, uh, sorry, I'm a long-time listener, but a relatively new subscriber to Doc's Extreme Opportunities. 
Hey, hey. Good man, Carl. Thank you. I really enjoyed listening to the new recommendations from the both of you. Thanks, mate. Given you both believe international shares should be part of a balanced portfolio, yes, and the majority of your most recent recommendations are US companies, what is the easiest way to purchase US shares? It appears my current trading platform, ANZ, will allow me to purchase US shares, but I want to know if this is the best way to do it. And if so, are there any potential issues I should be aware of? Looking forward to your answer. Thanks in advance and full on, Carl. Full on, Carl. Thank you, mate. Doc, I'm going to hand this one straight to you. You're our resident US investing expert. Uh, what is the best way to do it? And also, should he just use ANZ because he's already there? Um, so I'm not a big fan of using um, a platform that is not tailored for international investing, for international investing, because it, it, over time you just pay, land up paying a lot of extra in costs um, if you can. So there are lots of opportunities. Again, none of these are like, you know, um, don't consider these to be like a full full recommendations. These are my, you know, these are some, some of the ones that I, I think are personally, uh, I believe are worthwhile to use. So Stake is one that gives you access to um, US companies. Um, seamlessly, it gives you access to ETFs. It allows you to buy fractional shares. Um, it has uh, the, the uh, SPICs um, guarantee behind it through DriveWell, who manages their uh, trust account uh, for for the shares. So I think uh, that's that's worthy uh, consideration. You could use one of the U.S. brokers. Um, so I use Charles Schwab. They used to be much more accessible when they had a shop here. They're less accessible in that sense that they don't have a local shop anymore. Uh, you can access them on the phone, but I think that their entry barrier is now higher. They need a minimum of U.S. $25,000 to open an account. It used to be only $3,000 back in the day, uh, as far as I remember. That's a good, fantastic platform. I love that platform mm. because it's just easy to use, lots of research available. Um, you know, they don't charge any brokerage. It's, it's all, you know, it's all uh, nice and, and, and great. Uh, Charles Schwab is also one of the top 10 US banks. It's, it's, you know, it's a, there's a large commercial bank behind it. Um, then I guess other, you could consider Saxo. Uh, the thing to one of the things I uh, like to remind you is so Saxo gives you access to multiple markets, including Australia. So it's one way to consolidate if you're trading not just if you're buying shares not just in Australia but also in the US and maybe in Hong Kong, maybe in Japan. You want to, you know, and the reality is there are great companies in every little jurisdiction, right? So I mean, if you think about it in that way, you might want to buy a company here and a company there because you know you just found that great company to be in that location and not available elsewhere. If then Saxo is great. One of the things to keep in mind with Saxo though is Saxo actually has like an assets under management type of charge, which is 0.12%, uh, uh, which is, you know, per month, which is, can actually add up uh, yeah. or 0.11%. Uh, that can add up. And, 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 and if you have a substantial um, balance, then it's actually, you know, it, it is, um, it'll eat into. So it's like basically paying fees, but, uh, you know, so it is effectively then, then you have to you have to consider whether or not you could just keep it with the NZ because I mean um, yeah. you know if you're paying 0.1 to two percent um, uh, on on the assets, well you might as well not pay on the assets and pay higher fees. So there's there's lots of different ways to think about this. Uh, there's no one perfect answer, um, and you know I know that's the imperfect answer, but you know <laughs> <laughs> sometimes you just have to try different things. So I, like you know I've got accounts with multiple different places that I use. And some of them are for historical reasons, but um, yeah, that would be how I would say you can think about it. Nice, mate. Um, yeah, look, I, I have a like a bit like everything in investing. There's often a, a, a theoretically correct answer, and then there's the answer that makes most sense for individuals, and they're not always the same thing. A bit like borrowing to buy shares. 
Um, ANZ charged $59 from $59 for trades and stake, for example, do it for free. So you got to ask yourself, hang on, <laughs> what do I, what do I, uh, um, you know, what do I want to pay? The easy answer is pay zero, of course. The other answer might be though, you're paying a fee to stake on the foreign exchange transfer, and you might be doing one transfer at one trade a year. And at some point, you kind of go, you know what? By the time I paid international fees to transfer the the cash, um, do I want to pay fifty bucks to have it on the one place? Maybe you do. You know, like I, I wouldn't I wouldn't criticize anyone who said, look, I want to buy some Apple and some Berkshire just to use two companies that we both uh, <laughs> both like, um, and nothing else. And I'm going to hold them for twenty five years. You know what? If you're doing that, just use your ANZ account. But yeah, you know, pay pay you fifty bucks a trade or fifty nine dollars a trade for each, and be done with it. Um, if you are going to though, as Doc and I would like you to think, our members or listeners would do buy more regularly either buying new companies or adding to positions then that starts to add up right because i make 25 trade trades at 60 bucks a pop that's gonna you know you could you could you could, you could probably replace the tv with that sort of money or you could probably place a few times over actually given how cheap tvs are these days um you don't be paying thousands of dollars in brokerage if you can do it for literally free that starts to get silly so think about how you're going to invest over the next five and ten years and then sort of start with that end in mind schwab is great i love schwab it now has a twenty five thousand dollar in incremental instant sorry start again upfront uh payment you have to make or transfer you have to make to open the account that's prohibitive for most people uh, so that's not ideal on that on that basis um interactive brokers is terrible but cheap so you kind of gonna have to make it i want to say well yeah trade-off you have to trade-off either way right you know whatever simplicity you want whatever extra features you want whatever access you want you've got to have to pay one way or the other for all those types of benefits so have a think and see what works best for you um don't pay more than you have to uh, but also don't you know don't, don't make your life more complex for a couple of trades if that's if that's what's right for you. Is that fair, mate? Let's go to Lyndon. Hi, Scott and Doc. I'm a member of both Share Advisor and Extreme Opportunities. Excellent. Thank you, mate. Appreciate it. And largely thanks to you, he says I have gone from trading solely in ETFs to owning a broad portfolio of individual shares in both Australia and the US. Boom. Awesome, mate. Well done. I really appreciate your focus on long-term investing and keeping a level head amidst the chaos of the market and have directly benefited from your wisdom over this recent period. Awesome, mate. Uh, he says, anyway, I would love to spend more time singing your praises. Well, we were too, but that's okay. But my question is a little long-winded, so I should get into it. Here he goes. The question is on the macro side of things, specifically regarding taxes on corporate income. Basically, I think politicians and the media overrate the importance of corporate tax on the economy. The argument often goes that by lowering the corporate tax rate, this gives more money to businesses to hire more people. Uh, if increased employment increases wages, more people with more money means the economy grows. But it never seems to work out this way, he says. Lowering tax rates just means more money for shareholders and CEOs, which, while good for those of us with skin in the game, is not necessarily that beneficial to the economy as a whole. Of course, this makes total sense. Lowering taxes will not increase jobs. Wages are a pre-tax expense. If a company could benefit from hiring more employees, they would do it regardless of the tax rate. Now, there is an exception, he says, in the case of a company going through a period of hypergrowth. That is a company pouring every last cent of earnings back into capital to exponentially grow the business. In this case, lower taxes would increase the rate of growth. However, I'd think, particularly here in Australia, most companies don't fall into this category and the increased growth rate of the few won't affect the many. So my question is this, am I missing something here? Would lowering the t corporate tax rate from 30 to 20% be noticeably beneficial to the overall economy? Secondly, if you did want to encourage more hypergrowth, I'm sure Doc would love an Australian Tesla, he says, is there a better mechanism than just lowering the corporate tax rate? Now, mate, we normally do investing questions and finance questions, but I do love a good macro question. I'm a bit partial to, uh, to corporate tax as a, as a topic. So I'm going to throw it to you first, though. Uh, does lowering the corporate tax rate really matter? 
And whether it does or it doesn't, what would be a better way, do you think, of increasing the number of hypergrowth companies in Australia? So again, I, this is a hard one to answer because, you know, like, has anybody done a controlled study? This is one of those <laughs> things where you can't actually, you can't do a controlled study to know the answer, right? right? But I think at a very high level, so, and the other thing I'll point out is that, you know, if you talk about corporate tax rate, the corporate tax rate is there for essentially above a certain threshold of revenue, right? But that would also include a lot of small businesses, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so if you have a business earning say $10 million of revenue and you're paying uh, the same tax rate uh, as a business earning a billion dollars of revenue, then you know effectively, again, you kind of have a little bit of a disadvantage, right? So you know, uh, that's the other thing to realize. Um, generally, my preference is lower taxes. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you a very simple reason. I actually don't think that governments are very good allocators of funds. So basically, the more money you give governments, taxes basically as a way of, of some elected people to actually have access to a lot of capital so that they can just waste it away, <laughs> right? So there's, I, I think more value is actually created, you know, and, and maybe I'm more capitalist by nature, more value is created by actually letting the money sit with organizations that actually create value, they create products uh, and services that add value to society and create jobs and innovate, right? Uh, the last place to innovate is the government. The government horribly can't innovate, right? I mean, so I think if you th- if you take that broader view, then you should need to, you know, like, I mean, what are you trying to raise money for, right? I mean, you're trying to raise money for some basic needs, but if, you, if you're offering those basics, you shouldn't have to raise um, a lot of money from corporate. The other way to think about this is, you know, why think about taxation only from a corporate point of view? I mean, you could also think of taxation from a personal point of view, right? <laughs> I mean, eff- effectively, you could you could say that your you know, tax is actually there to take care of needs of the personal individual, and therefore the personal individuals pay the taxes. Um, you know, and maybe a ten percent flat rate on taxes for corporates is okay because you know the more more someone earns, you know, effectively they will end up paying more. So. Uh, it sounds like a good idea to, you know it's a, the, the corporate or the corporation is is a no one as such uh, and therefore it's easy to say well you know I want to tax it more or tax it less but I think you know yeah. um, you forget. and then the final point would be that you know it is easy for if for example Australia says that you know you're going to have a 35% tax rate well it's easy for an international corporation of Australia to say well I'm not going to be headquartered in Australia anymore I'm going to go to uh, I don't know, Seychelles or somewhere else, but there's 0% tax rate because I can do that, right? I mean, that's a, the other reality is, um, you know, just like as people can move, actually people are less mobile compared to uh, these, you know, corporate entities, which are more mobile because they can move. So I think there's a lot of different things. Because again, I'm no economist, but my general take is I think you'd get to a better global optima by focusing on individual taxation and service taxation then focusing on corporate taxation. Nice, man. I like that a lot. I think, um, look, yeah, I, 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 I mean, Doc and I have slightly different views on this, on it, but I think it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a continual, right? Here's, this is why it's so challenging, Linda, because you've, you've got to, the question, of course, is it starts from how do you want to run your society? And you kind of have to work backwards from that. And that's, that's where it gets really challenging. To Doc's point, if you have lower tax but a larger pie, 
you, you, can, you can raise a lot of money. If you have a higher tax but a smaller pie, you can raise a lot of money. Now, you can also say if you had a smaller tax and a smaller pie or a large tax and a larger pie, you also raise different amounts of cash. And so there is some straight out kind of, you know, I don't say ideology even in sense of like it being um, uh, a blunt instrument, just, just conceptually, right? Do you think lower taxes will grow the economy? And if so, will that generate enough cash to pay the things we want to pay for? Um, yes or no? Uh, if it doesn't work and you're lower, lowering taxes but not growing the pie, then you're wasting money and then you've got to raise it somewhere else for the same level of government services. And that's why it becomes, at some point, kind of, you know, a bit ideological. Because, you know, what do you think government should do, for example, to Doc's point? Do you get them to do as little as possible? Do you do as much as possible? Do you find the, a happy medium? I'm kind of in, I'm actually in Doc's camp. I, I think government should do as little, little as they, they possibly have to or can. Uh, but I'm also not in the in, in the view of saying we should pull government out of everything that government that private entity equity start again private companies can do uh, if they don't do it as well as they might. Like I don't think government needs to own Telstra, right? I think it's pretty obvious that Telstra as a business has done much better post government ownership, and it made sense for that for them to get rid of Telstra. On the other hand, I'm less sanguine about, for example, public health. Should should you know hospitals be in public hands? Arguably, yeah, I think so. Education, I don't know. I think a bit of both kind of works. So I, I wouldn't I wouldn't arbitrarily say one or the other, but I'm probably sitting on the fence. <laughs> the um, yeah. So the answer to your question then about corporate taxes is well, you know, how else do you want to raise the money? If you say to people you have to pay less tax, you've either got to hope you can grow the pie, or you got to cut spending, or you got to raise it somewhere else. To Doc's point, I think service tax or, or, or GST style tax are going to become more important over time for exactly the reason he highlights that companies will go overseas um, if they're not based here take a you know Netflix and Apple or whatever um, Google it doesn't really matter whatever company if they're earning money from uh, from somewhere else uh, or they're earning some much, their sales in Australia but the profits are being earned overseas a corporate tax isn't going to stop Apple <laughs> or collect any money from Apple transactions right so some sort of services tax or sales tax makes more sense arguably in a globalized world so there's lots and lots of different ways to try and skin this particular cat there's questions of equity there's questions of what's government's role I will say I actually agree with your point broadly Lyndon this might be uh, philosophical rather than rather than in fact because as Doc says we haven't done any controlled no one's done any controlled study so he can't know um, I I think that lowering the tax rate is l- unlikely to generate activity uh, because as you say the tax is only ever paid on what's left so I've, I've raised the I've raised the argument before and here's the thing uh, you know corporate tax in Australia is 30% people say we should lower it to 25 and my rhetorical question is what activities are you not doing now where you get to keep 70 cents in the dollar that you would do if you get to keep 75 cents in the dollar in other words if a company is saying, you know, I won't invest in this project or hire these people, if my, you know, if my tax rate is thirty percent, but I will at twenty five percent, effectively what you're saying is I don't want the seventy cents I would keep um, at all. It's not any value to me, but seventy five cents I would keep is worth something. In other words, you know, because it is on profit, not on sales. A, a portion of sales, I would completely agree. That's that's a whole different story. I just don't think the economic activity is meaningfully different at a slightly lower tax rate with as i said this is a long answer but it is like it's super nuanced right with the exception as doc says that companies will move overseas at some point if they can and if they want to and if the if the opportunity simply is too good to pass up because of the prevailing tax rates so if you start to lose capital or you lose employment overall because companies go somewhere else then that becomes an own goal and trying to maximize the percentage when you're not maximizing the dollar value of that you're raising from that is also problematic and at some point you have to realize there is a competitive global environment you have to do something about it which is just simply saying hey you know, the money is the money is the money. If I can pay less tax in Ireland, for example, which uh, Apple's done and I think James Hardy did, BHP and Rio famously have air quotes marketing hubs in Singapore where the tax rate's 15%. I think that's uh, uh, very clever. Let me say clever because I don't want to get sued. Clever use of the tax rules where you 
make all your profits in the marketing hub. You make no profits on Australian soil where the, where the stuff's actually mined. I, I, I think that's uh, that's an interesting, creative way of using the tax laws, but it's legal, so they do. Um, you know that that they're the sort of problems that you potentially create with a tax rate that's too high. Like that's a lot of a lot of thought for me. Does that provoke any ideas? Do you disagree? Do you want to comment on anything else I've talked about? No, no. I I, I think again, it's again, yeah. I, I mean, we could continue debating this for hours and probably not get anywhere, right? So, um, <laughs> exactly. I think we have shared you know a couple of different views with some similarities in the middle. With you know, uh, yeah. we can call it from left to center to right. <laughs> We've covered right, the right, range, exactly. Uh, exactly. so we can move on. And there's always the answer to, to your to your very original point, mate. This is they they they're kind of you know ideological leanings packed with some experience and and some interpretation of, of of what we think individual entities in the in the world companies governments individuals should do should be responsible for what sort of safety nets we want to have how big those are how wide those are how generous they are it's it's a really it's a stupidly difficult question right which is why we have politics in the first place because there are different people with different views anyway there we go mate um I reckon we're done. We've run out of time. Unfortunately, we have so many questions to get to, but we've run out of time. So that will have to do us for today's special mailbag edition. Um, I want to say, people, look, we had a lot of listeners who, who mentioned they are subscribing to one or other of our services, and I really appreciate that. So thank you to those who have. Um, no pressure, by the way. If you don't subscribe, you don't have to do that to listen to the podcast. It's free. We put it out there for you to enjoy, listen to, hopefully benefit from. And if there's nothing other than that, then we get some karmic benefit and nothing else. That's completely okay with us. But if you do want to join one of our services, as I I say every now and again, you can do so with some special podcast pricing for our listeners. If you want to join Doc at Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities, I think you should. There, Doc and Kevin do a spectacular job of running that service, trying to find the big, big opportunity, big market opportunity businesses of tomorrow with some extra risk involved. And we always say that, not because I want to overdo it, but because we don't want people to walk into these things blindly. Um, I reckon EO is a great way to do it. Now, you can, I, we can't, we can't promise anything. Past performance is no guarantees. I'm both obliged to say, and we think is important to say, as I have said before, though, by the way, if you're not going to use that, what are you going to use? So also keep that in mind. Um, but right now, as we record this, the average recommendation from Motley Fool Extreme Opportunities is up 37.9%. The market for every pick at the same time is up 18.5%. These guys are more than doubling the market's average return. And that's all the way back to June 2017. So early days on one hand. On the other hand, that's, what's that, Doc? 40 different recommendations, maybe even more. Uh, a pretty good return. 37.9% on average return compared to 185 if you'd bought the ASX or the All Lords instead on exactly the same day. So I would, if I were you, think seriously about joining Motley Field Extreme Opportunities. If you think it's the sort of investing that's right for you, we just want to give it a go. It is, as I've said before, very, 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 very good value. And you can join by going to fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. That's fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. Join and get some of the goodness that Kevin and Doc put out every single week and every single month with a new recommendation once a month all year, every year. We've certainly done that since the middle of 2017 and we'll keep doing it for a very, very long time to come. So if you want to improve your investing and you think we can help you, go to fool.com.au forward slash EO podcast. Mate, we're done. If you have listened and enjoyed it, if you haven't subscribed yet, please do that. Go to uh, any of the your favorite podcast apps, whether that's iTunes, your favorite Android podcast app or podcast one. Look up Triple M Motley Full Money, the one with my name and Doc's name at the bottom of the logo. It's a good way to make sure you're getting the right one. Uh, and do give us a rating if you are liking it. If you've got a sec, uh, particularly if you're using iTunes, it seems to be the easiest platform to use. Click on the rating thing. Give us some stars if you wouldn't mind. Leave us a review. Helps other people find the podcast, as I said. It helps uh, also the, the algorithms that do these things uh, pop the podcast up to higher points that uh, make more people 
well, give more people the opportunity to discover the podcast. So we'd really appreciate it if you get the chance and if you feel obliged. If you don't, that's okay too. Uh, of course, you can get a dose of foolishness and some marketing from us by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. How was that for a pregnant pause? Triple M. That's it for this <laughs> week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back on Friday with another dose of foolish insight. Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.